I'm Arthur Snell, and this is Doomsday Watch. I've been following the Saudis closely since late 2010, when Prince Sultan bin Turki al-Saud managed to escape from Saudi detention. And he contacted me, and this began an investigation into the Saudi royal family. My name is Hugh Miles, I'm an author and journalist, and I'm the founder of the Arab Digest. And the focus of my work has, in recent years, been on the Saudis. One of the first things that happened when MBS came to power in 2015 was he accelerated or brought back to life the Saudi external kidnap and murder program. Now, I knew this prince and other princes and princesses, many of them living in London, who were against MBS. They didn't trust him. They didn't like the way that he consolidated his power and changed the Saudi system of governance from this traditional Bedouin style of leadership and turned it into a one-man show. And then in 2015, when MBS came to power, suddenly they started to disappear. At first, I didn't understand what was happening. But then they kidnapped Prince Sultan bin Turki for the second time. And I was supposed to be on the plane with him, but I had changed my plans. His plane took off from Paris, where he had been renewing his Schengen visa. And he thought he was flying to Cairo, which is where I was waiting for him. And when his plane left European airspace and entered Egyptian airspace, it was diverted to Riyadh and he was taken off the plane. He'd been drugged. The, the Saudi flight attendants weren't flight attendants. They were all intelligence officers and they all had guns. And he was dragged off the plane, kicking and screaming. And he hasn't been seen since. Then I realized that there was a systematic campaign by the Saudis to kidnap and kill these dissidents and defectors living in the West. And to send a message, to send a message that they can do anything with impunity and there are no consequences. And so everyone should be afraid of them. How are we going to keep our thrones in a neighborhood where everybody hates us? The Saudi economy is going off a cliff. It's a chaos and poverty. Constant struggle for power. Mohammed bin Salman's central goal is to make sure that he be the next one to be king. Khashoggi used to work for the regime. He had to die. It's really about this global order that has enabled these guys. I mean, now you're saying you're shocked. You'd have been forgiven for thinking that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a dull place. Very rich, very conservative, the same family in power for nearly a century. Unless you're on a pilgrimage to Mecca, it's not exactly a tourism hotspot. It's a kind of place you only go for work if you have to. So that means I've been there a few times over the years. Counter-terrorism missions, low-key diplomatic assignments. And of course, Saudi Arabia has been at the heart of some big stories in recent years. Islamist radicalization and terrorism, controversial arms deals, increasing tensions with Iran threatening a major regional war. But the story of its young Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, known to everyone as MBS, is something else entirely, and one tied inextricably to the future of our planet and to how societies will be shaped within it. You will have seen his appearances since he rose to prominence in 2015. Young and strikingly tall, dressed in his traditional robes, he towers over other world leaders, holding court at glitzy tech conferences, investing in Silicon Valley startups, 
buying Newcastle United. This is the millennial prince, the Saudi reformer. But behind the modernization drive lies a darker tale of brutal power politics. Let's be clear, to win the Game of Thrones of the world's richest petrostate is a glittering prize, particularly if you're in your 30s and can expect to wield absolute power for decades. Yet there's a fatal flaw in this plan. You see, time is already running out for MBS. People are already suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate and environmental emergency. We are being betrayed by those in power, and they are failing us, but we will not back down. And if you feel threatened by that, then I have some very bad news for you. We will not be silenced, because we are changed, and change is coming whether you like it or not. The world is changing around MBS, and he and the Saudi kingdom are going to be left behind as the clock winds down on the oil age. This is a story of kidnap, murder and palace intrigue, of one man's desperate bid to hold up the sands of time, and of a major country with a large population of potentially radicalised young people facing economic collapse. This is the twilight of the oligarchs. To understand the implications of MBS's rise and the fall of oil, let's go back to the start of the Saudi kingdom. Jean-Francois Seznik is an expert on the economies of the Gulf region with the Middle East Institute. Well, of course, the, uh, the, the Saudi state has only been in existence since, since the early part of the 20th century. It was not a petrostate until about 19. 19- 50, really. They discovered oil in the 30s, but to, with the war and the Second World War and so on, they, was not, they were not really able to exploit their reserves until really the uh, late 40s, early 50s. But then when they, when they did, uh, they, they were able to become the largest oil producer in the world, and uh, they have not been caught up by Russia and the United States, actually. But uh, they are still the largest exporter by far. Of course, they they were one of the founders of OPEC, and uh, they were able to benefit from the increases in prices which took place in the 70s, and uh, where the price of oil went from $1.50 to to over $100 uh, per barrel. And, uh, of course, that created some enormous uh, cash reserves and wealth for the country. The oil company, Saudi Ramco, was probably the best run oil company, uh, national oil company in the world. But they realized that uh, if the world really moves away from oil, uh, they will be uh, suffering. The Earth's temperature has warmed by more than one degree Celsius since pre-industrial times. Based on the current trajectory, we face catastrophic warming of over three degrees Celsius by 2100. Climate change is seen by the world as one of the 
biggest threats we have right now. And the, the weather patterns are changing very rapidly and everybody feels it. So uh, everybody knows we have to cut the, the, the CO2 emissions. And the Saudis and the Gulfies are, are quite aware of that. And they, they realize that they have to move away from just being producers of oil because that's their main source of income. And 70% of the Saudi budget comes from oil today. It is very scary for them. Carbon Tracker's research shows that the largest listed oil and gas companies must cut production by over a third by 2040 to meet the Paris goals or risk investors' money on uneconomic assets that may be stranded. The boom times for Saudi Arabia are gone. Countries all over the world are switching to renewable energy, committing to net zero and abandoning oil. It's not that the Saudis are running out of oil. It's just that, in a few years from now, we're going to be needing a lot less of it. So the question for the crown prince and for the nation is what can be done about it? Well, I, I think you're putting your finger on something which is extremely complex within the kingdom because I think you're, you're putting the, uh, the onus here on, on Mohammed bin Salman. And, and the fact is Mohammed bin Salman can be viewed as somebody who really would like to move, get away from oil as quickly as possible, not so much because he, he's such a nice person or anything like this, but because he sees that in the long term, that is really the weakness of the kingdom and he has to replace it with something else. And he's, in many ways, he's trying to take all the cash he can get out of Saudi Ramco to invest in other industries which have nothing to do with oil. And uh, that is creating a lot of tension within the kingdom because you have, of course, uh, the, the habit in the kingdom that everything depends on oil. What I said MBS is trying to use Saudi Aramco, the national oil company, as the piggy bank that pays for the transformation of the country into a post-oil economy, with an ambitious plan he's calling Vision 2030. But there's something else at play here. Mohammed bin Salman's central goal is to make sure that the Saudi royal family continues to rule Saudi Arabia and that he be the next one to be king. And the challenge with the economy goes a step beyond just the idea that the oil is going to run out one day. Justin Sheck is a Wall Street Journal reporter and, along with Bradley Hope, the author of Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman and his quest for global power. You know, Saudi Arabia went from a country of like a very sparsely populated desert with a king, with nothing, to an extremely rich country almost overnight. They've never had a real economy the way we think of it. So the obvious solution to this is let's turn Saudi Arabia into a real economy. The thing is, there are fundamental structural obstacles to doing that. In order to have a functional governmental system, you need to give people an incentive for opening up businesses. You have to have effective court systems that are able to efficiently settle business disputes. You have to have a bankruptcy system that's transparent and works quickly. The country has none of these institutions. So the way he's trying to avoid sort of a, a, a descent into, into chaos and, and poverty is he's trying to spend a lot of money on making Saudi Arabia a center of other types of industry and other types of businesses. And it, it's hard for me to see it working out the way he sees it working out, but also it hasn't really been done before. So 
who knows? And, and to give an example of this, you know, Saudi Arabia for a really long time had been a, a pretty, I don't want to say a boring place, but it had been a, a sort of predictable place. They pumped oil, they sold oil, there wasn't a lot of action. All of a sudden, around 2015, mid to late 2015, they started talking about all sorts of social change, which, you know, for 35 years, the country had, had been, you know, allergic to. They started bombing Yemen. Modern Saudi Arabia does not lead military actions abroad, and, and all of a sudden they were. And they started talking about taking their state-owned oil company public. It's the world's biggest company by revenue. And the person driving all of this was this prince who no one had really heard of a couple of years before. He was you know, this young son of the king. His history was like, you know, he would say he wanted something and then he would use force to get it done. That doesn't work on the grand scale that he's operating on now. So what he's done in, 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 you know, with the IPO is he's taken a chunk of that money now. And what they've spent a lot of this money on is buying stock in tech companies. You know, Uber was a famous one. Didn't work out that well. I think that he was by supporting all these companies, Saudi Arabia will have access to this technology, access to these companies. They'll come and make Saudi Arabia a place, like a destination for, for technology companies and a place of great innovation. Again, it's hard to see it playing out, but you know the, the biggest kind of glitziest investment in this is this new city called Neom, which they're basically building a city from scratch in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia. It's, you know, very sparsely habitated area. You know, he said it's going to have like a, many of the world's largest tech companies will work there, and people will get around by like flying robot taxis and. They're going to have an institution to help people live to be 130 years old. And like all these things are like impossible to think about that he's trying to like will into existence by coming up with the ideas himself, hiring consultants who uh, say these are great ideas, and then just throwing as much money as possible at it. The contemporary city needs a full redesign. What if we removed cars? What if we got rid of streets? What if we built the line? A home to all of us. Welcome to the line. Neom. Flying robot taxis, people living to be 130, a city in a straight line over 100 miles long with no streets or private transport. The problem with this stuff is it sounds like something my 10-year-old son would dream up if you told him to imagine a space station in the future. But what's the evidence that anyone in Saudi Arabia actually wants to live without cars in a place that is too hot to walk around for most of the year, or that this stuff is even possible. Vision 2030 seems to exist more in the expensive reports of management consultants than it does in the real world. Iyad al-Baghdadi is a writer and political exile. I normally introduce myself as the good Baghdadi, uh, seeing as, you know, the most famous Baghdadi is now the, the now dead head of ISIS. He's one of the activists that thought the Arab Spring was going to lead to an opening up of Middle East politics. It didn't exactly work out that way. There is this big shift creating kind of a perfect storm. The Middle East used to be an extremely important strategic zone because of the oil. And we're entering, we're transitioning now into a new kind of world and uh, frankly, these governments have been in power for a long time and they have not really prepared for this, for this eventuality. Activists, including economic reformers and political activists from Saudi Arabia, have been talking about it for a long time. I would mention the case of a certain political prisoner now uh, by the name of Isam al-Zamil, 
who uh, who has been speaking. He's you know he's an entrepreneur and economist, and he's been speaking about the need to transition to a post oil economy for years. He said this is not going to work. Vision twenty thirty is not going to work. He says it took us forty years to become this dependent on oil. We cannot become independent within a few years. It's going to take. It's going to have to be a longer term plan. And of course, there was no question at all. Nobody was questioning the fact that this had to be done. When uh, when Mohammed bin Salman first declared these reforms, this is the two things we thought is, yes, all of these things should be done. And number two, Mohammed bin Salman is not the right person to do it. And he's not sincere about this. It really boils down to this point that uh, that, that uh, Isama Zamel said. If you want to transition to a post-oil economy and you want to build up massive reserves by converting Aramco into a, a public uh, company, etc., if you're going to say, I want to basically sell the oil from under your feet, then we cannot do this unless there's some kind of referendum because this is not, you know, this is not your farm. This is a country and this is our country. And and then if you want to actually have a referendum, this is not enough to simply call for a referendum. You need we need an atmosphere of free speech so that we can actually collectively negotiate our future. Uh, and for this reason, we thought that if he was sincere in his efforts to transition uh, Saudi Arabia into a post-oil economy, he needed to put some kind of political engagement, some kind of political rights on the agenda. And uh, frankly, Vision 2030 was almost uh, engineered to prevent that. My own belief is that the economic side, the whole thing about Vision 2030 was simply a good enough plan to get him into power, convince enough people that, yeah, he has he, he is a reformer, etc. This is the, uh, again, we're talking 2015. The world, unfortunately, especially the Western world, would like likes to I, to think of the idea that there can be such a thing as a liberal autocrat, some kind of a reformer figure, a liberal di- dictator who's going to you know uh, take power and then you know and then reform uh, this region because this region is so horrible and so you know incorrigible. Um, unfortunately, we're the one who's stuck with him now. There are clearly two narratives here around MBS. He says he wants to revolutionise the Saudi economy. Yet he's also holding on to the Al Saud power structure and doing it from a position of total autocracy, absolute power and a normal free market economy. That sounds like a contradiction. Just who is Mohammed bin Salman? Justin Sheck. To understand Mohammed, you have to understand his father. His father was one of the youngest sons of the founder of the Saudi kingdom. And as he grew into adulthood, he was very ambitious, but he wasn't ambitious the way some of his brothers were for money. He didn't have a a huge interest in, in getting money. He wanted to gain political power, but he always knew it was very unlikely he'd become king. He had a bunch of brothers before him. Prince Salman became governor of Riyadh and he was the governor of Riyadh for 48 years. It's a really powerful position. It's not just running the capital and and the province. It's being in charge of of the center of traditional Al Saud family power and of the religious heartland of Saudi Arabia. And in doing that, he became sort of the family disciplinarian. Like when there were family issues, when there was a prince who needed to be dealt with, who misbehaved, or when there were more meaningful conflicts, Salman was the one who would work them out or who would discipline people and he sort of became the keeper of of family secrets in doing that. So with that as the backdrop, 
Salman had a number of, of sons from his first marriage who, you know, one uh, is a professor who's educated at Oxford. Uh, the other one, the first uh, Arab astronaut. He, he went up with a, a U.S. space mission. Um, and another one is currently the oil minister who, who you know, is very well-educated and accomplished technocrat. And there was a lot of thinking that if Salman ever did become king, these guys had the sort of international credentials to be a kind of new, more cosmopolitan type of Saudi king. Um, Salman ended up in line for the throne. By the time that happened, the dynamic had shifted in the family a bit. I think Salman had soured a little bit on the idea of uh, cosmopolitanism being important for the king of Saudi Arabia. He said to to one person we talk about in the book, you know, I, I didn't go to the Sorbonne to learn how to be a prince, meaning he felt that knowledge of how the rest of the world works is good, but Saudi Arabia is run by the Al Saud and the most important knowledge for amassing and wielding power is knowledge of, of the country and, and, you know, the, and the palace. And it was the age at which, you know, most of Salman's sons or many of them had, had gone abroad for education. And Muhammad, who was a, a teenager who was close to his father, and he was, you know, a somewhat poorly behaved teenager. He had, he had a reputation in the palace for like, you know, behaving badly, for getting himself in trouble, for, um, you know, playing a lot of video games, eating a lot of fast food. But he decided to stick around. And I think Muhammad was always a favorite. We write about in the book, even when Muhammad is a toddler, you know, you know, Salman is almost 50 when Muhammad is born. So even he's almost not quite grandfather age, but there's a big age difference. So even when, some, when, when Muhammad was a toddler, you know, he would come in and, you know, knock stuff over in, in a meeting room and kind of run around like a maniac. And, and Salman always thought it was very cute. Like he seemed to, like Salman was known as a disciplinarian, but always seemed to have a sort of uh, like a particular soft spot for Muhammad. And he spent his teenage years literally next to his father for much of the time while his father was ruling Riyadh and learning how the politics of the, of the palace work and watching how one of the most powerful members of the royal family, his father, wielded power and balanced power among different constituencies. And I think by the time Salman became king, he decided that that his son Muhammad was someone who you know knew enough about the way power worked in Saudi Arabia and was willing enough to take decisive risks that that he thought he should be the next king. MBS did an extraordinary thing in 2015 when he suddenly realized that he was in pole position to win the race that everyone in, in Saudi Arabia was watching. Hugh Miles has spent his entire life imbued with the politics of the Arab world, and he's made a particularly close study of MBS. It's a disturbing story. That was the time when we discovered about MBS in 2015, and in a short space of time, in just a few months, a huge personality cult was erected around him. Official information was released by the Saudis, which cannot all be taken at face value because obviously it comes from the Saudis, but I have looked into his childhood, his history. I spoke with people who knew MBS from when he was a teenager, when he was school age. And what they told me is that he was very indolent, extremely spoiled. He was known for violence, instability. Uh, there's a well-known story that when he was growing up in, in Riyadh, there was a, a property dispute in between him and a, another man. And the Saudi judge had ruled that the property was going to be given to the other man, not to MBS. 
And so MBS sent the judge two bullets as a threat, which is why he got the nickname Abu Rasasa, father of the bullet. So he was known for mafia-like behavior, which of course is how you get ahead in the Saudi royal family, because you know the best way to think of it is like the Tudors. You know, there are essentially no rules. It's a constant struggle for power with a constant focus on the burning question of succession. Who is next on the throne? And anything goes in order to achieve that. Anything goes. This isn't just about Vision 2030, the post-oil economy and flying taxis. It's also a story about a vicious Game of Thrones in which those that present a threat to MBS or are perceived to present a threat are got rid of, demoted, imprisoned, or worse. Politics in Saudi Arabia is a little funny to talk about because you know it's an absolute monarchy. And Mohammed, from the starting point of having the support of his father, the king, or you know prior to that, having the support of his father, the crown prince, and his father, the governor of Riyadh, um, was starting from a position where most people in the royal family would have some deference toward him. There were very few in the royal family who would, who would try to take him on as a rival. What Muhammad did with people who disagreed with him or tried to get in his way on his you know, path toward amassing more power was he would lock them up, he would take away their money, he would expropriate uh, their companies. Before he became crown prince, he was deputy crown prince. He was second in line for the throne. And the first in line for the throne, the crown prince was a rival, his cousin. Uh, they scheduled a routine meeting at night in Mecca, as they, they often do. And when the cousin showed up for the meeting, they uh, escorted him into a room, kept him awake all night, and like, you know, browbeat him into into resigning, and then locked him up. And, you know, so so this type of, of, of behavior where when something needs to get done, you do it in the most forceful, decisive, least wavering way, was over and over the way that, that he did things. You know, it seems like he was working from the perspective that using brute force, then everything crumbles and he gets his way. And that's continued to be uh, his way of dealing with things. Yesterday we saw a quite surprising and shocking development in Saudi Arabia, the arrest of a large number of senior members of the royal family, as well as an even larger number of current and former officials and a wealthy businessman. Uh, this represents a kind of an unprecedented crackdown on corruption in the kingdom um, and shows that the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is wanting to demonstrate that there's going to be a new way of doing business in the kingdom, a new relationship between uh, the economic elite and the government. A new relationship. In the past, as a Saudi, you had to be loyal to the royal family. That was the system. Now you have to show total submission to one man, MBS. Starting in 2017, mass arrests of princes, senior businessmen and government officials started taking place. Probably 500 prominent Saudis have been arrested in recent years. The Saudi government itself claims to have recovered, their term, not mine, about $87 billion worth of allegedly corruptly acquired wealth. And people all over the world are in hiding, in fear of their lives. Iyad al-Baghdadi is hiding in Norway under the protection of the security services there. And then there's Ghanim. Okay, masal khair, Ghanim. Masal khair. Kushi tamam. 
Ghanem narrowly avoided being attacked by Saudi agents on the streets of London in 2018. It was at this time that MBS's reign of brutality would reach its terrifying zenith. I just want to reiterate that this is an encrypted call and, uh, you know, we're not going to identify where you are or anything like that. Great, great. I guess it would be good to start with you kind of explaining to the listener just a little bit about your background and how that led you to have the experience that you had in London when the Saudi authorities attempted to kidnap you. Well, the reason that they attacked me, uh, they targeted me, is because uh, I am active in producing uh, videos and uh, asking for human rights uh, in Saudi and exposing them to the world. And I, I become a target, like any other uh, Saudi dissident or activist uh, abroad. Uh, since Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince, they, he seemed to be reckless and uh, they used to not uh, target people um, in the West, especially in the UK or in America, but that has been changed since. I saw the problems earlier um, when I was back in Saudi. You have to beg them for your rights. That is not right. Anyone will speak uh, uh, his or her mind against uh, the Saudi regime will become a target wherever they are. They will try to destroy you. They will try to destroy you financially, mentally. Any, any, by any way, they will try to get you. I know this might sound like something from a movie to people in the West, but believe me, this is something happening in a daily basis, and their intention is to destroy you. That feeling is, is, is something that I cannot explain. Um, but what I can say, it's really this depressing. They taught us back in school about our enemy. Well, uh, since Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince, I realized that the main enemy to us is our own government. And is that because of his personality? Do you think that he's doing this? Yes, I think he's suffering from Junoon al Adama in Arabic. I don't know how to explain it, translate it in English. Well, you would say, I think you would say, like, um, a sort of mental illness. Yeah, I think he's suffering from mental illness and he thinks he can do whatever he, he wants. Even killing people and dismembering them, it's nothing. What else? He can get away with it. Then, in October 2018, grim news from Turkey threw the spotlight firmly on the regime. Under Turkish law, a murder case generally requires a body. And that made this afternoon's new search a critical one. Fifteen days late, Turkish investigators finally got into the Saudi consul's residence where they suspect Jamal Khashoggi's remains may have been disposed of. Khashoggi used to work for the regime. He used to be a, a government spokesman and he worked in the London embassy. But obviously when he became a Washington Post columnist, he became a huge star. And this was really what set him apart. And it was clear that something was going to happen to him because I, there was this long history of targeting opposition people. 
So it was really just a question of time before they were going to going to get him. And now, I mean, we, we can see now from the disclosures that have happened since Khashoggi that this was all being planned. But the thing about Khashoggi is that because he worked for the regime, he had to die. Because the regime operates, like the Mafia, a unwritten policy that if you are an insider and you walk out the door and you open your mouth, then you can be killed. In that case, then, the objective was always to kill him there in the consulate? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a fair assumption. Um, I, I think that it was done um, brazen, yeah, just a, a, a brazen attack, and it fits with you know this pattern, what we've seen from, from MBS, of being a very, uh, well, unpredictable, impulsive, ruthless uh, individual. Is it your conclusion then that they they wanted the world to know what had happened to send a clear message? Yeah, to send a message that they can do anything with impunity and there are no consequences. And so everyone should be afraid of them. In his life and war, he was always calling for better condition for people in his country. He was a prominent voice calling for freedom of expression and more accountability of the state. Why he didn't succeed in his life is happening now in his death. All the world's eyes are on the kingdom. So I remember in May of 2018, Jamal was here in Oslo. Iyad al-Baghdadi was a friend and collaborator of Jamal Khashoggi. And we were at a human rights conference doing a podcast with him. We had put the recorder in the middle of the, you know, middle of the table, and we were having this really fascinating discussion, talking about uh, all manner of things about Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia. And um, we were pretty upset at the end of it because I think we didn't notice that the battery had run out, like you know, two thirds the way in. So, like the last twenty minutes or so, we didn't really capture it. And I remember at the time that uh, uh, my friend Ahmed Tannash, who's my writing partner, he, he was upset. And I'm like, you know, uh, uh, w- w- the thought that, that popped into my head was like, you know, Jamal is around, you know, it's not like he's going to go away anywhere. You know, he's, he's part of this dissident community now. So like, fine, we didn't get this, this podcast. We'll get, it, we'll, we'll get it later. We really never imagined ever that something like this was going to happen. We thought that the worst case scenario ever, ever, would be if they somehow lure him back to to Riyadh. So even like I remember the day itself because I was actually in a conference in um, in Germany uh, with another friend of mine. You know, I I, I remember I was, I was I was rehearsing I think at the podium and he's like he comes up to me and he shows me this this stuff from from uh, from his WhatsApp and he's like you know what 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 do you know about this? And and I'm like. You know, uh, and the, because the news at the time was like he's missing, and I'm like, what's 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 going on? And I think um, I think part of me was in denial. I think for another three or four days. I think I remember waking up on this on the on the morning of the seventh of October, because you know we, we the story had leaked by then, and this was the story. The story that was was that you know this is exactly what happened. He was killed in there, but it sounded so so bizarre and so fantastical so uh, so horrible that it was almost unbelievable um 
I thought that it's a cover story. I thought I thought that you know maybe the Turkish intelligence made up the story in order to force the Saudis to uh, to respond to return him. You know, I thought that he was kidnapped, um, and I thought that you know the next thing that we're going to see is that they're going to show a, a video of him saying that he returned to his country of his own accord, and then we'll never hear, hear of him again. I thought this was the, the worst case scenario. But then, you know, um, I think it was the 6th or the 7th of October, I woke up and I'm like, you know, if there was a proof of life, they would have shown it by now. And I just had to accept that, yeah, I mean, he's he's gone. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a frightening moment because I knew that um, if, if they're, they're starting to pick off dissidents like that, then we're next. It's a long list. It might be a longer, short list, but you know, I'm somewhere on that list. Um, but of course, it was also immense rage. Immense rage, not only at uh, at Mohammed bin Salman. In a sense, I'm not even. The anger is not even about Mohammed bin Salman because we knew it's kind of like he. This is who he is. This is what he does. It's really about this. This global order that has enabled these guys for 40 odd years I mean now you're saying you're shocked in 2014 before he rose to worldwide fame and the Crown Prince title, MBS had started a war in Yemen, which has turned into the Saudis' very own Vietnam. They're stuck, trying to subdue guerrilla fighters largely by dropping bombs. And a lot of these bombs are killing civilians, while the guerrillas aren't going anywhere, and the Saudis are still at war seven years later. These are the only survivors of an airstrike which killed most of the Majali family. The attack pretty much leveled their home. But the accounts of what happened by the sole survivors and the many witnesses we interviewed have made the Saudi coalition's position unsustainable. Meanwhile, Yemen is facing mass starvation, disease and unimaginable suffering. But the Brits are doing fine. According to one expert estimate, we've sold about 18 billion pounds worth of weapons to the Saudis during the Yemen war. Even after a House of Lords committee concluded it was unlawful, and a court made a similar judgment, the British government keeps shipping the weapons. It's time that we were less judgmental um, and more grateful for arms deals, and it's your job to prioritise going out there and making money for Britain over and above raising issues like human rights. No, it is my job to get good deals for Britain, which means jobs in the UK, investment in the UK, and make sure that we're a winner in the global race, but at the same time, not compromising on our, our strong views about uh, human rights, which we raise with all of these countries. Now, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, again, this is a country that's very important for our prosperity, but it's also important for our security too. There are lots of other crazy stories, things that MBS has done that haven't worked. He bought the world's most expensive painting, a da Vinci, for $450 million, which turned out to be a fake. He tried to kidnap the serving Prime Minister of Lebanon. He tried to start a coup in Jordan. He threatened a war against his former ally Qatar. But we seem to let him get away with it. Of course, we're deeply concerned by that. And you're, and you're right, frankly, to draw attention to the arms so exports that we have. And because as things stand at the moment, 
we don't think there are breaches of international humanitarian law. Of course, Western governments know what the Saudis are up to. The relationship between the West and the Saudis is politically explosive. It's politically radioactive for both of them. If the Saudi people find out how much money the, the Saudis have given the West, there would be unrest. And if the Western public knew how their government was colluding with Saudis and human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia and the war, then they would be outraged. And the Western authorities generally go to great lengths to cover up for the Saudis. They always have done. Um, it's, it's big business. Britain is, is number two after the United States, but uh, other European countries also sell a great deal of arms to the Saudis. And of course, these arms are essentially a giant bribe because they are not militarily effective. The real purpose of, of buying the arms is to transfer money to Western countries so that Western countries continue to give political, economic support, diplomatic support to the Saudis. So both governments long ago agreed that the best thing to do was to keep everything secret. However much they give him a free pass, the West is losing interest in Saudi Arabia. In the post-oil world, its stranglehold on our attention is finally weakening. And two decades of failed interventions in the Middle East have left Western countries desperate to avoid further entanglements. From the perspective of the West, it's not only that the oil is far less strategic. That's not the only trend. It's also that the kind of interventionist spirit, especially among the Americans, is really spent. Obama and then Trump and then Biden now, the promise really is that we're going to bring the troops home. We're going to stop all of these forever wars. Um, I, I think something important happened after the Iraq war. Uh, this idea that America you know, is the sole superpower and can make things happen anywhere in the world, I think this, this idea itself has crashed. And so we have to contend with a future in the region where whether the person in the, in the White House is right-leaning or left-leaning, America simply does not want to get involved in other people's wars, or in other people's troubles, in other people's internal... And I, I, it's also, I think, that America itself is going through its own transition of identity. And yes, it's a fact that, you know, it's in the assessment of the administration that China and Russia are more se- are more serious geostrategic threats, especially China, even, even more than Russia. And so whether they like it or not, whether these autocrats like it or not, America is moving on. But this is the dilemma. I mean, uh, it's almost like, okay, this regional order is going to change radically. It's going to crash one way or the other. It might be a, a soft landing. It might be a hard landing, but it, there will be a landing. And, uh, you know, all of all of the money in the world is useless if someone can su- just some, simply whack you on the head and take it all away from you. Their anxiety is not just about the wealth. It's about their strategic position uh, in the world. The fact that the West will no longer move armies to protect them. Yeah, because, I, I mean, there was kind of a, a practical test of that. Even under Trump's presidency, there was an Iranian regime attack on uh, an Aramco facility in eastern Saudi Arabia. What crossed my mind at the time is that had this happened in the 1990s, you know, half the the American Navy would be moving moving into into the region, and I think this is this is the you know this this moment encapsulates the fear and anxiety of these dictators because you know they used to have this thing under their their feet 
which the world needs so much, especially the developed world, especially the Western world, and especially America, needed so much that they would use that they would move armies to to protect it. Uh, that time is gone. And you look at Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia again has you know for a very long time it never had to worry about defending its own borders using its own army. Across across the Gulf, there's 82 million Iranians. Uh, in 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 Saudi Arabia, there's like nearly 30 million Saudis. Uh, Turkey, you have 82 million people, and again, and in Egypt, you have 100 million people. It's really about protection. It's about who's going to protect us anymore. How are we going to keep our thrones in a neighborhood uh, where everybody hates us? How are we going to keep our thrones? It's a good question. Which Western politician would be willing to order troops to lay down their lives to defend the Gulf monarchies like they did back in the 1990s when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait? It seems like they're on their own. And despite all the wealth and power, the young prince is a man under immense pressure. The Saudi economy is going off a cliff. There's no solution. They've squandered the oil age and their opportunity. They should have put it in the bank, like Norway. But instead, they've essentially frittered it away, and they now have a very serious problem. Plus, the economy is only one of the acute threats that MBS is facing. He's also facing the Yemen war, which is ongoing and expanding in the Houthis. He's facing the threat from Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, extremists. And most dangerously of all, he's facing a threat from within his own family. Because after what he's done to them, according to the Bedouin Code in Saudi Arabia, they have to take revenge. And they will do as soon as they get the opportunity. It's just at the moment, they're all in prison. But President Biden has called for the release of all political prisoners. And this is what MBS is very, very frightened of, because he knows that if this happens, that the royal family will take revenge on him. His back is against the wall. The problem is that MBS bet very heavily on Donald Trump. And now Donald Trump has gone. Who can he count on? He's managed to isolate everybody else, all the other would-be power bases, businessmen, tribes, the religious establishment. Uh, the people, the royal family. No one wants to support him anymore. Uh, and indeed, they uh, don't even want to fight in, in Yemen. Uh, they're, they're, they're terrified. And this is why they've had to get mercenaries there as well. The, the, the Saudi armed forces are totally ineffectual, uh, as we've seen in, in Yemen, because despite this colossal spending, they can't protect themselves. And the Houthis are now fighting inside Saudi Arabia in three provinces, and they have problems in the Persian Gulf, and they have this third front now in the north, missiles coming from Iranian-aligned militia in Iraq, and they have no way of protecting themselves. And these missiles are raining down on their palaces and government buildings. And now he's running out of money. It's becoming more difficult to get support because, like Angela Merkel said, Nobody defends the Saudis without being bribed. And MBS is in a, a tight spot. What do you foresee coming down the track for Saudi Arabia, for a Saudi Arabia that can no longer afford effectively to bribe Western governments? Is Saudi Arabia, does it end up as Jordan, which after all is, is not a particularly threatening place and in many ways is a reliable ally, or does it end up as Yemen? Saudi Arabia is a special case. Whoever controls Saudi Arabia controls the oil pipe. So this is one reason why 
the US and the, and the West has a strategic long-term interest in Saudi Arabia, but it's not the only one. The other special thing about Saudi Arabia is it has the two holy mosques. Now, it's very important that a pliant pro-Western regime is in charge of the two holy mosques. Because if Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or somebody got hold of them and they called for jihad, then obviously this could be a serious problem given the many, many millions of Muslims living in the West. So the West can never give up Saudi Arabia altogether. But the country itself might not survive. It's only been around since the 1930s. And certainly one scenario is that the regime collapses, the country breaks up, and it goes essentially back into the state it was before it was formed. In other words, anarchy. But another scenario is, it's like Russia in 1917, where a new regime takes over, a bit less corrupt, a bit more Islamic, the West can do business with it, the Saudis themselves all go to prison. So the future is very uncertain. But I think the, the clock is running down on the Saudis. And again, this is why the Egyptians maintain a military base just across the water in eastern Egypt, together with the Emiratis, because they are ready to quickly move in and secure the two holy mosques and take over the running of the country in the event of some kind of unexpected instability. It is a matter of values in the end, and I think that there is, there, there is a, a big shift between 2011 and 2021, I, I feel that this this age of social media, of course, it came with a lot of negative effects, and we can talk about them forever. But but I feel that there's a there's a certain trend. I think I think we're living through an extremely important moment in the history of humanity. Keeping in mind, of course, we're like our species is two million years old. Um, but this the, the invention of the internet has been kind of an inflection point in the history of our race uh, as as human beings. And the way that I kind of sometimes interpret it is that this is humanity getting to know it itself. It's almost like we're getting to know what it means to be human, and we're kind of negotiating what it means to be human. And so, in 2011, uh, most of our news and most of our, you know, our experience of, you know, what kind of content we consume on a daily basis was moderated somehow or the other. Uh, and moderation always comes with bias and comes with its own, um, you know, comes with its own problems. We're in 2021 now, 10 years later, and I think that social media especially has changed us in ways that we don't yet fully appreciate. And the idea of humanity itself, the idea that you can watch, you know, uh, a natural disaster, you know, in China or, or, in, or in Bolivia, etc., and you can feel the same tug in your heart that, you know, these are human beings, these are, these are fellow human beings. Uh, this this shifted a lot of our attitudes, and I think more than we actually appreciate. It's almost like this is a, a slow reprogramming that we have endured. And I think that you know, if if we're skipping back ten years into the past, we might we might we, some things might seem jarring for us. Uh, so what really what really gives me some hope is this idea that we are learning to see each other regardless of where we are as human beings. 
And as human beings, we deserve a life of dignity. This is the big, this is the big uh, and simple story, really. I think if we get mired up in, in ideas about politics and political configurations and ideologies, etc., ultimately that's dehumanizing. It's basically saying that this is not. It's looking at this region as a problem to be solved, rather than a community of human beings who deserve a life of dignity. Because that's really what, where it's at. I mean, history cannot stop at where MBS or you know whoever else uh, you know wherever their careers end. The, the history has to continue after that, and we have to think. Fine, this is a large region. This is 25 countries, more than 700 million people. Uh, what kind of future do we want here? Nothing exists in a vacuum. A Saudi Arabia that can no longer afford cutting-edge Western arms might not be a bad thing, and MBS himself deserves no sympathy. But a Saudi Arabia full of millions of newly poor with little or no political rights will be a combustible, unstable mix. In the past, the Saudi monarchy has dealt with these things by spraying money at the population. No longer. Their oil is increasingly going to be less sought after. In a world of rapid climate change, the most precious commodity will not be hydrocarbons. It will be H2O. Yes, I'm talking about water. The world is running out of it. And that's the subject of our next episode, Hydropocalypse Now. It sounds crazy, but this is the big question. Is the world running out of water? Major globally recognized industrial cities right across the globe facing Massive shortages of water. There was uh, absolute banning. Water management is conflict management. If climate change is a shark, water is the teeth. Water is the big agenda item out there. And it's going to come back and it's going to bite us all really severely. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. Doomsday Watch.